Hi, this is Pam Johnson, and today I'm going to be talking on the topic of thoracic endovascular aortic repair. First reported in 1994 in, by a group in Stanford, thoracic endovascular stent placement has uh, been subsequently FDA approved for a limited number of indications, which include descending thoracic aortic aneurysm and penetrating ulcer. After implementation of this technique in comparison of patient populations between those repaired with endovascular stents and those who underwent surgery, it became apparent that there were favorable outcomes and reduced complications when stents were used in across a range of different in indications as I'm going to review. So for example, we have a number of really large series. Um, between 98 and 2007, there was a 60% rise in thoracic aortic repair. This was really reflecting an increase, six-fold increase in the use of endovascular stents. In a study that included over 11,000 patients repaired between 2004 and 2007, the use of endovascular stents increased from 21 to 55%, while open repair decreased from 79 to 45%. In another large series, um, a number of the advantages of endovascular stenting became apparent. This included patients with a range of pathology uh, such as aneurysm, dissection, rupture, and aortic tear. So uh, there were a, num a large number of patients that had open repair and endovascular repair, and there was reduced early mortality in the endovascular repair patient population, although the five-year mortali five mortality was similar overall. So what is the role of CT and wh what is our role when we're evaluating these patients preoperatively? We need to identify the pathology that is amenable to thoracic endovascular stent placement and at this time these are being placed in patients with, with a large range of different pathologies, not just aneurysms and penetrating ulcers. So, um, we need to recognize and to determine whether the patient is a candidate depending on a number of different variables that can be identified on the CT. Importantly, we need to determine whether preliminary great vessel bypass surgery is necessary, most commonly the left subclavian artery, whether the pathology is situated too close to the subclavian artery to enable stenting without occluding the artery. And we also tailor the stent selection to the patient's pathology. There are a number of different stent types, which I will review. CT, it's important to know that CT can identify risk factors predictive of potential complications after stent placement. And following stent placement, we use CT, of course, to confirm successful treatment of the pathology and to identify complications. So let's take an approach based on the three thoracic aortic se segments being the ascending aorta, the arch, and the descending aorta. Uh, the ascending thoracic aorta can be stented in select patients. Uh, coverage of the arch is complicated because of the great vessels, as you can imagine, and descending thoracic aorta repair is still the, most region, mo the region most commonly stented where the original work was done. So starting with the ascending thoracic aorta, these are non-surgical candidates specifically. It's a small subset of patients who cannot undergo surgery and their only hope for repair is to have a stent placement and stents have been placed in the ascending thoracic aorta in patients with dissection, aneurysm, intramural hematoma, penetrating ulcers, floating thrombus, and as the authors in the literature emphasize, these, are, these should be done in experienced centers because they're complicated procedures. 
There are contraindications to placement of a stent in the ascending thoracic aorta. These include aortic regurgitation or stenosis, lesions near or involving the aortic valve and coronary ostea, coexisting coronary artery disease. Now these are these are uh, findings that can be made on the CT. We can see aortic calcification. Um, if, if the study's gated, we can identify regurgitation. And we certainly can determine whether how close the pathology is to the coronary arteries and whether the patient has significant coronary artery disease. Other contraindications for use of a stent in the ascending aorta are, include involvement of the entire aorta. And there was one paper where they, it, in their patients, they would not place a stent if the patient had connective tissue disorder or traumatic aortic injury. Okay, moving on to the aortic arch. Arch repair with stent grafts alone is challenging because of the complex branching anatomy and the aortic curvature. There's two factors, two variables that are unique to the aortic arch configuration. The advantage is that you, you obviate the requirement for cardiopulmonary bypass. So um, in many places, hybrid procedures are being performed, which is combining endovascular stent placement and open repair. The types of grafts that can be used in the aortic arch include fenestrated grafts with a curvature to accommodate the arch. These are designed based on a preliminary 3D CT where the patient's arch anatomy is evaluated and a graft is designed that can be configured to this anatomy. Um, the fenestrations can be placed at the time of deployment or, or prior to deployment. A second type of graft that can be used in the arch is a branching graft, and this has the advantage of a better seal by having branches that actually go into the great vessels. But as you can envision, it, these can be difficult to position and deploy. So those are a number of the types of grafts used. Of course, these are always evolving and advancing with new grafts being designed to solve some of the problems and the challenges. Okay, let's talk for a minute about something specific to the aortic arch, and that's coverage of the left subclavian artery. Occluding the left subclavian artery does not just carry the risk of left upper extremity ischemia, it also carries the risk of stroke and paraplegia because of um, the branches of the left vertebral artery perfuse the anterior spinal artery. So you're not just potentially limiting the blood flow to the brain, it's also the spinal cord. So if the left subclavian is going to be covered during stent placement in our institution, the patient will undergo preoperative left subclavian artery bypass. There's varying practice, but the current literature really supports the practice of preoperative bypass. So let's take a look at a case here. This is a patient who was um, 10 years status post ascending thoracic aorta repair who has now has a descending aneurysm with an ulcerated plaque as shown by the arrows. Here are some uh, sagittal oblique multiplanar reconstructions nicely showing the ulcer in the arch just distal to the left subclavian. As you can tell by the image on the right, this pathology encroaches on the base of the left subclavian artery. This stent cannot be placed to cover the pathology with an adequate landing zone. So um, here, here is the image of the stent placement on the left and the post-operative image on the right showing the stent going from the arch to the descending thoracic aorta. 
And here is the post-operative CT where we see that the stent has covered the left subclavian artery, but as shown by the volume rendered image on the left, this patient had undergone a preoperative left subclavian artery bypass with the left subclavian anastomosed via graft to the left common carotid artery. And what we're seeing on the CT is some backfilling um, of the residual left subclavian origin segment that's actually being perfused from the bypassed segment. So here is a second case with... Um, Pathology involving the arch and the descending thoracic aorta. It's an aneurysm. This is a 68-year-old man who developed hoarseness and was discovered to have a 6-centimeter proximal descending th thoracic aortic aneurysm involving the distal arch, as shown nicely on these axial and MPR images. Patient underwent endovascular stent repair. We can see the stent being placed in the image on the left, and um, the the the. Uh, relationship of the pathology to the great vessels necessitated coverage of the left subclavian artery as shown by the black arrow on the post TVAR uh, coronal CT. So this patient had undergone a preoperative right common carotid to left common carotid and left subclavian artery bypass. And as I mentioned, the, the current recommendations support bypass. The Society of Vascular Surgery guidelines says that preoperative left subclavian artery bypass is indicated if occlusion will compromise perfusion of a vital organ. And they specifically list patients who are at increased risk. These include those who have had a left internal mammary to left anterior descending coronary artery bypass, those with the left vertebral artery that terminates in the posterior inferior cerebellar circulation, if the patient's right vertebral artery is occluded, and if or if the patient has a left upper extremity dialysis graft. Other patients include those who have had previous abdominal aortic surgery that involve ligation of lumbar and middle spinal arteries because, as I mentioned, the left subclavian artery does provide some blood flow to the spinal cord. Cases that recover more than require more than 20 centimeters of aortic coverage are at increased risk for spinal cord imaging injury and those with hypogastric artery occlusion as well so those patients require preoperative bypass and any patient who may require distal thoracic aortic repair in the future it's recommended that they undergo bypass preoperatively okay let's move on to the descending thoracic aorta special considerations in this segment include celiac artery coverage if the pathology involves the abdominal aorta again we need an adequate landing zone which I'm going to discuss in a bit but some patients need preliminary arteriography to confirm patency of the gastroduodenal artery which will provide collateral flow from the SMA after celiac occlusion um, in a patient with concomitant SMA stenosis they may require an SMA stent preoperatively so when you're evaluating these patients, very important to look at the relationship of the pathology to the abdominal aortic branches, to the celiac artery, and also whether there's any significant stenosis in the celiac or superior mesenteric artery, and if the inferior mesenteric artery is patent. These are all factors that will um, affect the decision-making preoperative planning in these patients. So here's one series where 31 patients required celiac coverage, and it was shown that 77% of them had celiac SMA collaterals 
In 39%, they also required coverage of the SMA and an SMA stent. The results revealed a 6% rate of visceral ischemia and paraplegia. And one of the complications noted was retrograde flow from the celiac, residing, resulting in type 2 endoleaks. All right, so I'm going to stop there, and when we come back, we're going to move on to talking about the full preoperative assessment and our role as imagers in evaluating these patients prior to endovascular stent placement. Thank you very much. <laughs> 